Jack was not certain exactly what procedure to adopt. He did not know how long he was supposed to gaze into the ball, whether he was supposed to make his mind go blank, and whether he should actually cup the ball in his hands. He decided against the last. He had vague recollections of seeing pictures of people gazing into crystal balls, which were usually on tables, round ones, covered with green velour cloths. The people looking into them had never, so far he could remember, been children, which was a relief. Nine times out of ten they were female and swarthy, and wore fringed shawls over their heads. They're definitely on tables, he decided, not in people's hands. He felt sure that if anything did appear in the crystal ball, he would drop the ball and run. He sat cross-legged, because it seemed more respectful and business-like than sitting just anyhow, and began to gaze steadily into the crystal ball, only a couple of feet away on the ground. He was very conscientious about keeping his gaze fixed absolutely non-stop on the ball, because he knew this was essential if it was to have a chance to work. He began to feel rather queer once or twice, but he persisted. For a second he thought something was coming, but then he blinked, and it was gone. "'What you doing, Zack?' inquired a high voice right by his ear. He jumped nearly out of his skin. If he had been holding the ball, he would certainly have dropped it. The reason why the voice had been right by his ear was that it belonged to Daisy Parker, who was only about three and a half feet high. "'What's that?' she pointed. "'I want to play with that pretty ball.' She went forward with the intention of picking it up, but Jack grabbed her. "'No!' he cried. Then, carefully, "'No, Daisy. You see, that ball is magic.' "'Magic?' Her eyes widened. "'Has it got a death ray?' "'Well, no,' he told her. "'At least I can't say for sure. You never know.' Daisy edged backward. "'Daisy! Daisy!' They were the high, trailing tones of Aunt Celia. Jack groaned. In the distance he could hear other voices, too. "'Mummy, mummy, come quick!' Daisy pushed aside the rhododendron. "'Come and look! Zack's got a magic ball!' Jack sat back and waited for the inevitable. "'I was playing hide-and-seek from you, and I found Zack and Zero and a magic ball!' Daisy was burbling. Now it was Jack's turn to feel like taking a piece out of her leg. He looked up to see the tall, swaying figure of Aunt Celia. Her eyes were riveted alarmingly on the crystal ball. Jack actually took another quick look into it himself, so sure was he that she was seeing something. "'Oh, oh!' she moaned. "'I see. Oh!' "'What the devil's going on?' demanded Mr. Bagthorpe's voice. "'Get that fire-raising child out from among my shrubs!' "'Come on, you lot!' it was William's voice. "'Jack's having a vision!' When Jack next looked up, there were four or five pairs of eyes peering round the rhododendron. There he sat with his crystal ball under a laurel in broad daylight. It was ludicrous. He could see that. Hmm. Ridiculous. If he had possessed the power to sink into the ground, even if never to return, he would have used it. "'I was practicing,' he said defensively. "'You have to practice.' He noticed that Uncle Parker was walking away, supporting the leaning figure of his wife. Daisy had stopped to see the fun. Someone might get struck by a death ray. <laughs> Jack, darling! 
His mother pushed her way so hastily past the others that for one awful moment he thought she was going to overshoot and kick the crystal ball. He shut his eyes. "'Gypsy Petalengro, I believe,' said William, in his sardonic voice. He was in a bad mood, because Atlanta had not wanted to see the castle when she got to Isham, and had gone off on her own shopping instead. He was also still sore about Jack's insinuations about his anonymous from Grimsby. "'Tell us, O seer, what do you see?' he went on. "'Right,' Jack thought. "'The situation could not possibly be worse, so he might as well turn it to the best use he could.' If you do get caught looking into a crystal ball in such circumstances, at least you look less silly if you are actually seeing things in it. He fixed his eyes on the ball. A hush fell. He could hear his mother breathing heavily above him. Her yoga always seemed to let her down when she most needed it. I see, I see. He found the tone of his voice changing as he spoke, and actually felt a tingling in the nape of his neck. He really did think he saw... I see, I see a sky, cloud, a sign from above. Not a twig snapped in the Bagthorpe shrubbery. You could have heard a match strike. I see a giant bubble bearing tidings. <laughs> his voice trailed off. Damn, he thought. I've gone and got it mixed up with Vision One. As it happened, it was an inspired mistake. Golly, came Rosie's awed voice. He was right about the lavender man, and now a giant bubble's going to bear tidings. Oh, Mommy, I'm scared. Rosie was already rattled following her summons to Grandma's room. Grandma had absolutely forbidden her to put incense in the portrait. Put Thomas in, she said, lying in my lap, the way he used to. Those days will never come again. Rosie had objected that she could not even remember Thomas because she had been only three when he was run over. All she could remember was once having some long, painful scratches on her arm, which she had later been told Thomas had done when she had accidentally interrupted him washing his ears. <laughs> Grandma had insisted. The only thing left that could comfort her now, she said, was to have Thomas lying in her lap. And if she could not have it in real life, then at least she could have it in her portrait. She had then started pulling down all the photographs of Thomas and thrust them into Rosie's arms. "'Take these,' she said, "'and remember, he was the most beautiful, golden, shining animal that ever lived, and his eyes. Never mind about my eyes and nose, but get his right.' With this, poor Rosie had been bundled out of the room, fruitlessly protesting that she couldn't draw cats anyway. She had gone back to her portrait, and had just been trying to paint out the incense sticks she had just painted in, when the Parkers arrived. This had given her an excuse to leave the portrait, which she was beginning to hate the sight of. She was even beginning to feel that it had been her first birthday portrait that had triggered off all the terrible events of the last day or two. Given all this, it was not, then, good news to Rosie to hear that a giant bubble bearing tidings was about to float onto the Bagthorpe horizon. <laughs> I really am scared, she repeated. It may not come, comforted Mrs. Bagthorpe, though without conviction. The lavender man had come. If it does, I'm not putting it in Grandma's portrait. Rosie was staring at the crystal ball. I'm not, I'm not. She's making me put Thomas in now, and I never even saw him. There, there, said her mother weakly, and led her out of the shrubbery. Only Daisy lingered. Is it still there? she asked. 
What? Oh no, it's gone. Jack rose, his knees stiff, and stowed the ball back among its shavings in the box. Crystal ball, first quality, she read out. It really was ridiculous the way she could read for a four-year-old. What does that mean, Zack? One consolation was that half she read, she could not understand. <laughs> You're too young to understand. Come on, Zero. As he passed the sitting room, on the way up to his room, he could hear raised voices. Raised, that is, even by Bagthorpian standards. Undermining this whole household, he heard his father shout. And there's that dog at the bottom of it, and that fire-crazy daughter of yours. Where is she now? Where is she? Out there, came Uncle Parker's voice. Well, get her out of there. Get her in view, and don't let her out of it. Jack moved quietly off. He had heard what sounded very like matches rattling in a box when Daisy had moved out there in the shrubbery. If there was going to be another fire, at least he could make sure that Zero had an alibi. An alibi? An, an, uh, an excuse for being somewhere else at the time. <clears throat> As he passed Tess's room, he could hear Atlanta's voice pronouncing English words slowly and carefully one after another. He gave a sharp rap on the door and shouted, Night, just off to my room, to make sure his alibi could be properly authenticated. The first thing he saw on entering his room was an envelope lying on his bed. It said, Jack, private, on it in what was obviously disguised writing, but was definitely Uncle Parker's disguised writing. He opened it. Why can't you keep that hound of yours in hand, he read. Don't let, him, don't let me catch him chewing anything of mine. I hear you got the giant bubble in. Good work. See you tomorrow, 6.30, at same place for further instructions. It's all right for him, Jack thought. It's not him that has to do it all. And I wish he wouldn't call Zero a hound. He took out his plan of campaign and began to make notes on the two latest M.I.s while they were clear in his mind. His mind was not staying clear for very long intervals these days. He was beginning to get confused about things. After reporting the incense incident in Grandma's room, Jack added with satisfaction, Got William rattled about Anon from Grimsby. He toned down the description of what had happened in the shrubbery, avoiding any mention of how silly he had felt, and doubtless looked, when discovered. He simply recorded the effect he had made on other people, which had been gratifying. He then put the book back in the middle of the pile of comics. Guard, Zero, he said. Good boy. Zero's tail twitched ever so slightly. Don't you worry, old chap, Jack told him. We haven't finished yet. You're going to be the chosen dog of a prophet. Zero looked soulfully up at him from under his sprouting eyebrows. Jack gave him a thorough patting and praising, then got into bed. It wasn't really bedtime, but it had seemed a long enough day. Just before falling asleep, he remembered something. He climbed out of bed, got a chair, and removed the box containing the crystal ball from the top of the wardrobe where he had put it for safekeeping. He did not know whether crystal balls invited manifestations, but if they did, he preferred them to occur inside the wardrobe, out of his sight. As he scrambled back into bed, he remembered the early morning rendezvous. He set the alarm for six o'clock, and called it a day. <laughs>